Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. Thanks, Jeff, for taking the time to speak to the sustainability agenda today. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking to you and uh, focusing really on your latest book, your uh, rather wonderful uh, and scary, uh, The Water Will Come. And maybe I, we can t- touch on some other uh, topics and subjects that you've written about uh, connected to that, or I guess more generally in the, to do with the environment and so forth. But really to focus on on, uh, on, on that book, there's a lot, a lot of material there and uh, a lot of ideas, important, important work. So um, I, I guess just maybe if you could set the scene a little bit about what you do and how you came to, to write this book. Well, um, I've been writing about, you know, energy and climate change for um, about 15 years, you know, uh, covered all kinds of aspects of it from, you know, coal mining in the coal industry to, uh, you know, spending a lot of time with climate scientists and writing about um you know, what's going on in, in Greenland and Antarctica and droughts and all kinds of things. But I never really thought much about sea level rise other than as a sort of abstract and kind of distant future threat, the way that I think a lot of people think of it. Um, until Hurricane Sandy hit New York in, in um, 2012, um, I, I wasn't in New York that, that, that when the storm hit, but I lived nearby and went into the city the next day. And um, you know, I was walking around the Lower East Side and, um, you know, looking at all of the soggy uh, uh, streets and, um, you know, cars that were still full of water and and the smell of the city. And it was really striking, of course, for obvious reasons, seeing what, you know, nine feet of water, which was how much the storm surge that that hit my that hit uh, New York, uh, how much water it pushed in there, and I and I called a friend of mine who's a, a climate scientist, and we were talking about it, and he said to me, you know, one way to think about this is as a kind of dress rehearsal for sea level rise, and I was like, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, imagine this nine feet of water that came into New York City instead of uh, going out in a few hours, imagine that it that it stayed there, and. Um, you know, that's sort of what sea level rise is, is going to look like. And um, I thought that was a pretty profound idea. And then he said, if you really want to blow your mind, go have that same thought experiment in Miami. Um, and so I did. And I went down to Miami and, and you know, uh, was stunned by what I saw, uh, what, I, what I realized was at risk. You know, I was there on uh, during king tides and, you know, there was a, several feet of water in the streets of Miami Beach same streets where there's condos that sell for $10 million. And I, it just became very clear to me that this was sea level rise was not a sort of future distant problem, but something was happening, you know, now and in real time and that uh, cities around the world, um, especially starting with Miami and, and New York, but, you know, going on from there, were not and are not uh, prepared to deal with this and that nobody is really thinking uh, about what the implications of this are for the future. And that sort of launched my book. Well, it's a fascinating book, Jeff, and really interesting to see how people are responding on the ground in locations at risk of rising sea levels. Uh, and I was particularly struck by the different ways in which people deal with this psychologically, particularly given the time frames over which this will all play out. Yeah, well, 
you know, sea level rise is especially tricky in that sense because, you know, it, it is, um, even when you think about the sort of fast rates of sea level rise, it's still something that, you know, it's not, it's going to unfold in years and decades. And it's sort of this incremental changes that, you know, some places are seeing more quickly than others. And, and so it's, it's really kind of a hard thing to process. Um, and it's hard to bend our mind around the fact that, you know, even though we think it's this sort of slow creeping threat, you know, if you look at the history of the earth and you look at sea level rise in the past, we know that, you know, sea level rise not rises not uh, just in this sort of long, gradual slope, but with these um, kind of dramatic pulses. And there have been times in the past when we had like 13 feet of sea level rise in a single century. And, you know, there are signs that, you know, uh, some of the same mechanisms that cause that that kind of sea level rise may be happening again as we heat the climate up and push harder and harder on the climate system. And, you know, 13 feet of sea level rise is would be just, you know, kind of essentially catastrophic for every coastal city um, in in the world. And so, uh, you know, it's a it's a very big deal. And, it, you know, and, and the, the problem, as you pointed out, is is that, you know, it, it, it is the built infrastructure along the coastlines. The problem is we've built all these cities and all these places, you know, and with this idea that the land is one place and the sea is another place and it's never going to change. And um, we now know that um, not only is it going to change, it's going to change uh, quite rapidly. Yes, absolutely. And I, I know there are some uh, uh, researchers who, who talk about in the past, you know, that climate change has been, you know, a perennial aspect of of uh, life on, on the planet. But the, the key is that people were able to move and did move. And, and actually some argue that, you know, the kind of changes and movements that took place due to significant changes in climate are, you know, an important part of, I guess, humanity's evolution and so forth. But as you say, this uh, when, when, when you're talking about cities, you're talking about this kind of infrastructure and development, and particularly, I guess, growing urbanization um, from uh, forces that are unfolding in, in many different ways. And, and indeed, there are uh, th- those who argue that actually, uh, from a sustainability and ecological perspective, the cities actually are the best bet, really. Um, so I guess there's two different things unfolding at the same time. Right. And, you know, I mean, yes, there's obviously a lot of um, urbanization happening in the world. You know, people are moving into cities. Cities are growing. Cities are um, really good news uh, for in a lot of sort of environmental uh, from a lot of various environmental angles, you know. Um, uh, but, um, you know, the problem is if is for, you know, coastal cities is is that, you know, they were not built with this kind of changing uh, environment in mind. And, you know, the real problem with this whole sea level rise story, and one of the things I think that, you know, people have, um, has captured people's sort of imaginations in this book and why um, it's done as well as it has is, you know, it's not the sort of environmental factors, but it's the economic factors. It's the idea that, you know, um, as this awareness of sea level rise seeps in to people's consciousness and the risks that they run even in the near term with, you know, higher tides, higher flooding and things, what that's going to do to the value of coastal real estate. And, you know, a lot of cities, uh, New York and Miami are obvious examples, but virtually every coastal city, uh, certainly in the West, is you know dependent upon property taxes for revenues, and as property taxes, as property values decline, 
revenues fall, and it, it's a really big economic uh, problem for coastal cities figuring out how to deal with, you know, this declining value of of coastal property at the same time when they're spending need to spend a lot of money to, you know, basically build coastal defenses to the degree that they can and do other things to. Um, you know, shore up their uh, the resistance to the rising water. Absolutely, and I, it's something I'd like to talk about a little bit. But that idea also that the, nobody owns the risk in a in a way it's very fragmented. And the idea that people buy properties, but then they get mortgages, but then the mortgages are, um, you know, I was just talking about particularly Florida, somewhere like that. That you know, then they're then they're commodified or they're, they're securitized, and then they're distributed, and you know, and and how this you know the risks just kind of uh, are spread all around like that, and there's no central doesn't need any central mechanism that you know that 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 that, that kind of looks after that and maybe uh we'll come back to that but can you talk a little bit about the underlying science here of of broadly at a very high level of what's happening you know i know on the one hand that um you know uh one of the big topics at the moment is is in and, and you know from a biodiversity and uh and, and environmental uh perspective is is um the uh you know the the, the glaciers and and so forth and the uh, ice sheets um and you know on the one hand the ice in the water um is is uh, melts like like a you know i guess like an ice cube in water and is uh, has less impact in, in, in than 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 ice on land um but i, I just wonder can you identify a, a couple of key drivers of of, of rising sea uh, sure sure i mean you know there's a lot of factors that go into rising seas have including sort of thermal expansion of the water you know as the water heats up it gets it gets it expands um, you know mountain glaciers melting and all that but really all that stuff is sort of noise the the real issue is you know basically how fast greenland and antarctica uh, are, are going to melt and um, specifically how fast the ice sheets that are on the land will essentially slide into and fall in into the water um, as you pointed out the the, the the floating sea ice that's already in the water, like the, we see, uh, anyone who pays close attention to this sees, um, you know, these images of declining sea ice in the Arctic uh, every year. We've been tracking that very closely. All that kind of stuff is not really important for um, for sea level rise. What's important for sea level rise is how fast the the glaciers on Greenland and Antarctica, you know, slide off the land into the water, essentially. And, you know, um, what's happened science-wise to be, you know, very simple about it is that, um, you know, in the last 10 years, as they've understood more and more about um, ice dynamics and, um, you know, the factors that influence the the rate of melt, um, everything from soot on the snow uh, that darkens the snow, it causes it to absorb more heat and therefore melt more quickly uh, to the the kind of friction underneath the glaciers as they as they slide uh, over the over the land and into the sea. All, all these sort of feedbacks have basically suggested that you know that the risks are getting higher and higher. That you know the IPCC you know a decade or so ago had the sort of high end risk at about three feet. Um, now, uh, NOAA, um, the, you know, the top U.S. government science agency, uh, has the, the high-end risk at eight feet. Um, and so it's more than doubled uh, in the last decade or so. And 
I just will say that that's largely because of more understanding of uh, what's going on in Antarctica, uh, especially West Antarctica. Um, there's a lot of concern about um, uh, it's a complicated story, but the, sh- the short version of it is, is uh, the uh, ocean is warming. It's getting underneath the glaciers in West Antarctica and uh, um, could trigger a kind of ice cliff collapse. The large glaciers start would, could start kind of collapsing because of warming from below quickly into the into the sea and um if that kind of thing starts to happen there 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 could be a, a massive essentially slide of these glaciers into the into the sea which could have a dramatic impact uh, on sea level rise so you know what's basically happening is that we understand two things one is that you know we're not getting emissions under control anywhere near as fast as we had hoped we might, you know, a decade or so ago. And so as the planet is continuing to heat up um, at a faster rate, we're also understanding more and more about the impacts that heat is having on on uh, Greenland and Antarctica and the, and the risks are rising. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, now, um, where I mean, you, you mentioned the, the the different ways of, I guess, calibrating the the impact um, in in terms of you know, uh, I guess, concentrated uh, areas of concentrated population and also uh, the economic uh, <coughs> risk factors as well. Where are do you think the the biggest? Risk? You mean what cities? What places? Well, I mean, you know. Um, you know, the risk for cities is is directly related to, you know, essentially elevation. You know, um, geology has something to do with what kind of rock it's on and things like that. So, you know, it's it's pretty easy to, to pick them out. I mean, places, you know, a lot of my book is spent in Miami. Miami is, you know, hugely at risk um, uh, because it's basically on a sort of a low-lying flat, it's a low-lying flat pancake all of South Florida, and um, there's a whole lot of um, very expensive real estate, you know, right on the water. And the the geology of the place is um, it's built on porous limestone, which means it's like Swiss cheese. Um, and the water can go if you if you tried to build seawalls, the water can go right underneath. So not only is it vulnerable, but it's difficult to protect. So Miami is one place, you know. Um, most coastal, many coastal cities on the East Coast are, are, are at risk. Norfolk, Virginia is at risk. Um, you know, Boston is is uh, is at largely at risk because of the landfill around the city. Uh, internationally, you know, cities like Jakarta, uh, which have uh, problems with subsidence already, uh, are hugely at risk. Um, Shanghai is uh, very much at risk because of uh, um, a lot of the low lying area around there. Uh, obviously, cities like Venice, which have had also problems with subsidence uh, for years, uh, the subsidence is kind of being fixed, but um, by they're stopping the pumping of groundwater, but there's still huge flooding issues there and will continue to be. Um, London, you know, because of the backing up of water up the Thames is is vulnerable, although they're working on a new kind of barrier for that. Um, so, you know, uh, I went to Lagos for my book, um, Nigeria, a, a city that's very at risk. Um, Bangladesh, of course, is the sort of poster child for, um, uh, you know, or, you know, uh, nations, entire kind of nations at risk, you know, um, 45 million people in Bangladesh live, uh, less than three feet or one meter uh, above sea level. 
Um, so those are sort of the hot spots around the world. Absolutely. Um, and what? Uh, well, <laughs> it's a big question here. What can be done? Um, what are what are some of the? I mean, I, I I was intrigued to read about some of the the activities in Lagos, and uh, I mean, I know that there there are these issues about you know um, wealthier parts of the the cities where they're you know going to build these high rise and and that kind of thing, um, which is you know very worrying as well. Um, what what impressed you the most? I mean, I guess the Netherlands has a, a long track record of dealing with you know flooding and one kind or another. Um, what 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 impressed you the most and did you get a sense that that technology can save us so that you know there are possibilities on that front well i mean i think i'm very um skeptical or suspicious or um you know the idea that technology is going to save us is um uh you know a a notion that i have a, a lot of trouble with um because i think that there's a kind of technological optimism in our culture and our society now that tends to let us dismiss issues like this thinking oh we'll figure out some kind of technological solution for this um and so we don't have to really worry about it um i think that there are lots of things that one can do for in various places um to to slow and to protect areas slow the the rise of water and protect areas it's difficult to point to, um, you know, one kind of fix because uh, every place is different. And one of the tricky things about sea level rise is, is that, you know, it, it's there's no kind of one size fits all solution. Um, it depends on the geology of the place. It depends on what you're trying to kind of protect, uh, uh, things like that. So, I mean, the obvious things are, you know, in the Netherlands, they've built um, a lot of, you know, walls and barriers, essentially. Um to hold back the sea and walls and barriers are, you know, obviously the first kind of um, response to most people when they think about what can be done. Um, And those walls and barriers can be, you know, sort of small in the sense of a a wall or barrier that's a seawall around a house or a particular building, or they can be an enormous barrier um, like they're trying to build, like they have built um, in the lagoons outside of Venice. Um, like the Thames barrier uh, on the Thames River, uh, you know, they can be on various scales. And, you know, they can work and they, they do work sometimes and they um, are, can be very expensive to build and um, they have a lot of um, ecological and environmental consequences. Um, there's a lot of social justice consequences to, to wall building in the sense of who's behind it and who's not. Um, but, you know, so, so that's one thing. I mean, there's other things that are that that can be done, including elevating buildings, improving improving drainage. Uh, you know, these are sort of more short-term kinds of things. Um, but ultimately, you know, what we're talking about is and it is a retreat from the shorelines. I mean, the economics of this are um, so daunting for any kind of adaptation. And there is going to be adaptation in certain places, but there's also going to be a massive retreat um, because we're not going to be able to afford to kind of protect our cities and protect these places uh, and just sort of go on about our business and think we're going to put up a wall and everything's going to be fine. Um, What our future looks like is, um, you know, massive retreat from from coastlines, whatever the technological response is. Oh, right. (laughs) That's uh... 
worth worth reflecting upon. Now, you 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 uh, is it called Eco Atlantic? How do you pronounce that in 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 uh, Lagos? Uh, yeah, Eco Atlantic. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That that was quite an intriguing uh, project. Can you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so Lagos was one of my. Uh, favorite places or or not favorite um most eye-opening uh trips i took in reporting this book um for two reasons one is i I spent a couple of weeks um living in the water slums uh uh in the lagoon uh in lagos where several hundred thousand people um live essentially squatters in in this lagoons and uh, they live on these houses, shacks, you know, built out of scraps uh, on poles in the water. And and um, one of the things that I really understood there um, that is not so profound, but um, it's profound when you really think about it, is that, you know, our problems with sea level rise really are about, you know, inflexible infrastructure. Because when I was there in the slums in Lagos, you know, I, I talked to them about sea level rise and they were like, or storm surges and stuff. And, you know, basically they just shrugged and they said, you know, you, we need to raise our houses four feet. We can do that in, you know, two days. You know, that's not a problem. You know, we, we commute by boats anyway. And it's like, no big deal. We got other things to worry about, you know, and, and it's true. I mean, they, they didn't build, you know, million dollar condos, you know, right on the beach thinking that, you know, they were going to that that beach was always going to be there. And um, so the, the sort of simpleness of their structures and everything, uh, you know, has a big impact on their vulnerability. And I think a lot of the sort of future architecture that I've been looking at and people that I've been talking to, um, you know, are, are thinking about exactly those kinds of things about how do you build in a flexible way uh, on on and around water. So that was one thing. The second thing was Eco Atlantic, which you pointed out is a. Uh, massive development on the on the coast um, of uh, Lagos, where they basically built a you know filled in a part of the coastline and built a, this sort of enormous well it's about uh, three miles long and a mile and a half wide this you know this sort of appendage to the city which is going to be a fortress for middle class and wealthy uh, Nigerians and others who want to live in Nigeria it's um, you know, they they want to turn it into what they call the 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 Dubai of Africa, and you know it's a it's 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 you know may or may not make any sense economically, and they're having trouble kind of finishing it because of financing after the financial crisis and everything. But you know, it's this it's surrounded by twenty five foot walls basically of you know rock and and you know they're selling it as this sort of fortress of protection and. What's so striking about it is is that it it really is the sort of you know archetype of the social divide that uh, sea level rise and climate change more broadly brings to a lot of cities, which is you know okay, so you're living on this you know eco Atlantic um, fake island and you're safe and you're twenty five feet above the sea and you don't have to worry about sea level rise and all that. but you know, you're surrounded by, you know, 19 million people who are living, you know, at water level and in slums. And, you know, how safe and protected are you really when you're in your 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 fortress uh, on the coast and and everybody else is around you is is not. And um, it was just a very stark example of something that we're going to see playing out, I think, more and more, which is the very sharp line between the sort of saved and the doomed as climate change accelerates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I, I, uh, 
there's tremendous momentum at the moment around uh, cities, really, in terms of dealing with climate change and, um, you know, notwithstanding uh, current gov- US government. But uh, uh, generally, um, did you find uh, any cities that had really thought through some of the implications of Well, yeah, I mean, you know, New York City, for example, is um, thinking really hard about a lot of this. You know, they were, you know, had a little shock therapy with uh, Hurricane Sandy. uh, And, you know, that that caused a lot of serious thinking about what what's going to happen there. And, you know, there was the uh, competition called Rebuild by Design that was um, basically led and organized by. Um, a Dutchman named Hank Ovink, um, who really, you know, oversaw this process. They came up with a lot of really inspired kind of ways of rethinking how we live along the coast. And, you know, there was a hundred million dollars or so of funding, uh, from the U S government for some of these projects and, um, a number of them, there were six of them chosen in this design competition. And a number of them are in the process of being, um, built right now. Um, so that was a really exa- interesting example of innovative thinking, and and you know the 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 in the mayor's office, um, the people who are running the kind of climate resilience uh, office are really smart, and um, you know trying to ch- change zoning and do various things to force you know uh, uh, buildings to move their critical infrastructure to ha- to higher floors so they're not vulnerable for flooding and all of that. So New York is is one place that, you know, has has a lot of smart thinking going on. But, you know, like in many places, that smart thinking is dwarfed by the scale of the problems. I mean, New York has enormous problems with, you know, uh, brownstone buildings, you know, built too close to the water with basements and things like that that are very difficult to elevate or protect. You have a subway system that uh, is very vulnerable to flooding, you know, the tunnels between New York and New Jersey. And another big problem that that many coastal cities have uh, in New York, Miami, and many Boston, many, many others, um, is airports, which are often built on landfill right on the water because that was this easy, convenient place to build them. You know, the airports in New York are, are very vulnerable also. And so eventually there's going to be have to be conversations about moving airports and things like that. And that's a very difficult um, conversation to have. Right, absolutely. Now, you you also mentioned in the book that uh, military bases are at risk and so forth. And this is something I think uh, I noted before that notwithstanding what the US government says about climate change, it does seem like the military takes it a little bit more seriously. (laughs) Yeah, so I spent um, a good amount of time at um, Naval Station Norfolk in Norfolk, Virginia, which is the largest um, Navy base in the world. headquarters for all of U.S. operations in the Middle East and Europe and all that. Uh, it's a base with, it's home to like six aircraft carriers and, you know, 75,000 people work on this base. It's just this enormous military complex. And um, I happened to be there with uh, then Secretary of State John Kerry, who understood the risks of sea level rise and climate change very well. And um, we were on the deck of uh, the USS San Antonio, uh, um, a battleship, uh, for a uh, anniversary of the of the Marine Corps. And uh, he asked the commander of the base, 
um, right in front of me how much time this base has before it's you know has to be shut down or moved because of um, sea level rise. And the base commander said, you know, 20 to 50 years. And you know that, that was it's a, it was a stunning thing to hear the base commander, you know, telling the Secretary of State that this enormous military complex is going to have to be shut down or moved in as little as 20 years. And um, but it, but you know, it, it's it's emblematic of you know the challenges that the military faces because you know the military has a lot of money that they can spend on all kinds of things, including adapting to um, to sea level rise. But the problem is, is that you know they can build walls and raise the piers and everything on the military base, but you know, it doesn't help if the railroads that lead to the base are all underwater. Um, if the roads that lead to the base are all underwater, people can't get to work. They can't get the materials there. So it's not enough to just sort of rebuild and save the base. They have to sort of save the entire area, which is, you know, uh, uh, the entire region. And that's a whole other a whole other question, you know. Um, but I was very impressed with the people in the Navy and other um uh, military um, branches that I talked with because, you know, they, they have a very practical-minded view about this here in the U.S. I mean, you know, as one Navy officer said to me, you know, we deal with the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. And um, that that feeling was very powerful in all my reporting. The problem is, is that they can't talk publicly about it because, you know, that we have these climate deniers in, in Congress um, who will essentially zero out their budget on anything that they talk about that has any connection um, with climate change. So they have to do things sort of, you know, secretly or quietly or pretend they're doing them for other reasons in order to to um, to, you know, take the actions that they know that they need to do. Yeah, it's terrifying. The, <laughs> the climate denial um, which seems to be very embedded. Um, now, some of these uh, for, for, I guess, the developed world or you think cities like London or New York, and you can uh, somehow maybe get your head around some of the, the issues in terms of, you know, moving and, 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 uh, and so forth, you know, uh, massive as they are. But we think of places like, uh, you know, Shanghai or Bangladesh, um, particularly the poorer uh, cities with, you know, uh, massive slums and, you know, very poor infrastructure and things like that. Um, the, the, the human tragedy, the scale of the hu- potential human tragedy is just uh, remarkable. Um, and you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, how, how you see that unfolding already. We've had, you know, all kinds of refugee problems, but, you know, the scale of this is just uh, eye opening. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, this is going to be um uh, above everything else, a kind of humanitarian crisis, you know, it's going to make our refugee crisis now look like, you know, a sort of, um, just a small time thing. Um, the number of people that are, that, you know, there's 145 million people around the world who live, uh, within three feet of, of the coast, um, uh, of the waterline on the coast. I mean, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, the UN and others have tried to do studies about the number of refugees um, that might be created at various sea level rises. Um, and they're kind of all over the map. But anyone thinking about this for two seconds can see that that the number of people who will be displaced are is huge. Um, 
you know, one study I was just reading was talking about 12 million people just pushed out of just Florida. And that's not, you know, that's a, you know, wealthy area uh, comparatively. So this is going to be massive, massive uh, uh, rearrangement of humans on the planet here. And, you know, it's obviously places like Bangladesh and um, the whole West Coast of Africa are are, are very vulnerable um, but, you know, also the, the island states are, are, are really, you know, they're for them, the Marshall Islands, for example, where I went, you know, for them, it's not just a, you know, a kind of real estate crisis or an economic crisis. It's like a total existential crisis for them. I mean, their, their nation, you know, will go underwater um, unless they, you know, do something in, in the Maldives there. They're they're adding land, basically building, you know, build, doing some man-made islands to try to kind of compensate for sea level rise. But in the Marshalls, they don't have the money for that. So these nations are thinking, you know, their 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 whole country is going to go underwater. And where are they going to go? And how, what does it mean for their nation to just cease to exist? What does it mean in a prosaic way for you know their fishing rights? They have millions of square kilometers of fishing rights. What what happens to those if their nation is doesn't exist? Can they? Is there a, you know do they become a virtual nation of fisher fisher people? I mean what 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 do they, where do they where do they go? You know are they you know Australia is not um, exactly welcoming to refugees and um, you know there's all of this sort of uh, thinking that's that's beginning to happen as the reality of this displacement begins to kind of seep in yes yes how did this leave you at the end you've you're 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 not unfamiliar with you know uh coal industry environmental crisis of various kinds um how did you feel at the end of this have you have you bought a house <laughs> up in the mountains um and 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 just you know are you reasonably optimistic uh, that that you know that we'll find a way through this i mean it's a it's a massive and distributed problem in 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 many different parts and clearly some some areas will 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 do better than others and um you know and it all a lot depends really still on on you know whether it's 1.5 or 2 degrees and over what time frame and 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 you know and i know you also um looked at geoengineering um which is you know always uh, never very far away these days in in people's minds uh, policy makers at least and things um I don't know if you can talk a little bit about that just to finally there. Yeah, well, so my previous book was about geoengineering. Um, it was a book called How to Cool the Planet. And I spent a lot of time with geoengineers and people who were thinking about this. And I think I wrote the book in 2011, I think. And by the, at that time, you know, geoengineering was, you know, this sort of, you know, dirty little secret that nobody wanted to talk about that, you know, if you kind of renegade scientists and you know, political thinkers, you know, were, were toying with. And I thought it was an interesting, um, you know, it brought up a lot of really interesting issues and technological, political, all kinds of things. And so I, I wrote a book about that, but I'm struck by how much it's moved to sort of mainstream, uh, kind of discussion about what we're going to do about, uh, you know, the implications of climate change here. And, you know, I, I mean, I and I'm not pro-geoengineering. I'm not an advocate of it. But um, uh, I do think that there's a certain inevitability that we'll start um, trying some of this stuff, uh, especially the particles in the stratosphere to reflect away a little bit of sunlight. And, 
you know, there's, uh, it's no replacement for cutting emissions. Um, but you know, I, I do think that, you know, if it's done responsibly and if we kind of allow good scientists to get involved and we really do a good job of understanding better what the, um, implications of it is, it's not, it's not necessarily the sort of disaster scenario that a lot of environmentalists um, would like to paint it out, paint it to be. But, you know, it's not going to save us and um, it could take the edge off of things. And more broadly, you know, sea level rise is going to happen. Um, my book is not called, you know, the water will come unless we all put solar panels on our roofs. Uh, you know, it's it's going to happen um, because of the amount of uh, heat that's built up in the world's oceans um, already because of the long residency of CO2 in the atmosphere. No matter what our emissions scenario looks like, uh, we're going to have significant amount of sea level rise. So, you know, how do I feel about that? I think that, um, you know, part of the reporting this book, you know, there was parts of it that were very inspiring and, and especially speaking with um, urban planners and architects and others. I mean, when you look at it through the lens of sea level rise, you see how dumb much of our the way we've built cities you know, is. And as you pointed out, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in cities right now. And people are thinking really hard about how to reinvent cities and how to reinvent how we live in urban areas. And sea level rise is part of that. And so I, I've seen a lot of really interesting uh, work, a lot of interesting experiments and different ways of living with water, different ways of adapting cities, you know, if, whether it's, you know, floating structures or canals or all kinds of things. So I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting creative stuff that's going to arise out of this moment. Um, but there's the the problem is is there's also going to be a tremendous amount of um, suffering and economic devastation, um, not to mention environmental devastation, ecosystems and things um, that are going to be lost, uh, you know, as this as this water comes up. You know, um, one of the things that I really try to underscore with the book is the importance I think of sort of making these risks transparent to people. Um, there's a lot of people in the world who live on coastlines in ways that have no idea that, you know, that this is real, that this is happening and that, you know, their, the value of their real estate essentially, or their property, um, is hugely at risk. And, um, I think people can choose to live however they want to live, but I really think that this, how to make this risk transparent so people can begin to make choices about, okay, I'm going to leave. I'm selling my place. Time for me to get out of here and I'm going to go somewhere else before, you know, I lose all the value of my property or before I'm at risk or, or whatever. So I, you know, I, I really hope that people begin to think differently about their relationship um, with the coast. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's next for you now, Jeff? Uh, rest you're traveling around talking about your book um and the other projects on the horizon well i'm you know i'm going to australia and new zealand for um uh writers festivals and book tours in the next uh, month or you know in the next few weeks um so that's the near term uh i'm writing about um the rebuilding of puerto rico after the storm because i think that's after the hurricanes because i think that's a very interesting um uh, exercise in, you know, how do you rebuild a place better than before? And what are the politics of that and the way that, you know, you know, the best 
the best uh, ideas, uh, engineering ideas and technological ideas, solar panels, microgrids, all that kind of things can get derailed by kind of boneheaded and corrupt politics um, is is really interesting. Um, and beyond that, I have a couple of book ideas for my next book, but nothing that I'm 100% committed to yet. Right. Well, I wish you the very best of success, Jeff. And thank you so much for talking to us today and sharing uh, your insights and uh, all the, the work that you've done on The Water Will Come. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.